everyone. We've uh, just spent some time singing some songs about Jesus, about God, about who our Savior is. And so uh, this was probably going to be an easier question for you to answer, not necessarily out loud, but in your own minds. But I want you to take a few moments to think about who Jesus is and maybe what you picture, what you think of when you hear the name of Jesus. It's an important question to ask ourselves, not just because we want to know, do we know Jesus for who he is or what he's done, but also because I think it's important we know what Jesus is doing, right? And, and, and that really comes un, under our understanding when we get a chance to know who Jesus actually is. We're going to be in Mark chapter 12 today. We're going to be right towards the, the tail end of the chapter. We're just going to look at a few verses together, uh, verses 35, 36, and 37. And as you're turning to that, that passage in Mark chapter 12, I, again, I just want to challenge you to think about what you picture when you think of Jesus or when we call to name uh, Jesus in our songs of worship. See, Mark tells us in the very first chapter, in the very first verse of his gospel, that he's written this gospel as an account of the good news about Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the, the Son of God. So as we read through Mark, and as the name of Jesus is brought up, what, what do you picture? I think for, for some of us, we, we picture Jesus sitting next to us on a bench and just inviting us to share the details of our day. You know, others uh, have in mind a, a man with long hair, a white robe, and a blue sash. Others of us might have more of a, a superhero in mind, someone that we call on when, when we're going through something difficult who will, we believe, swoop in and rescue us from our circumstances and save the day. Others of us might be thinking about a voice on the other end of, of the phone, that, someone that, that we can talk with whenever we need to, and that he'll pick up the phone whenever we call upon him. Uh, others of us might have words that come to mind when we think of, of Jesus' name, when, we, when, when he's brought up. We, we think of words like refuge or rescuer or helper or lamb of God or, or even son of God, as Mark uses so frequently in, in, his, in his Gospels. The point I'm trying to make here is that many of us have different ideas about who Jesus is. We have different pictures in our minds about who Jesus is and, and, and what he's done. And there's really only one way for us to discern who Jesus actually is, to know him fully. And it matters that we know him fully, church, because when we know him fully... We understand him rightly. We understand what he came to do. We understand who he is and, and what promises of God he fulfills. And, and that actually should have and does have an impact on how we live our day-to-day -day lives. Not just the things we do, but impacts the, the courage we have to face the circumstances in front of us and the, the, the path that God's laid out before us. And so I want us to know Jesus fully, and really the only way that we can really discern who Jesus is, the, the best, the right, the, the good way of knowing and understanding who Jesus is, is for us to turn to our Bibles and, and to seek him there. The author of Hebrews tells us that, that God spoke through the prophets long ago, but today, now, he speaks to us through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so the invitation of our passage this morning, as we're going to find out, is really an invitation for us to know Jesus more fully. 
to picture him not just as, as, as this like little, this small area of knowing Jesus and, and to envision this is my Jesus, but to understand that Jesus is probably much larger and greater and more awesome than you dare even imagine. So, so turn with me to Mark chapter 12. I'm going to just read a few verses for us here, starting picking up in verse 35. Mark writes here in verse 35, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Father, may we hear you gladly this morning. May your words bring life and hope and excitement. May they bring conviction where we need conviction and, and challenge and encouragement where we need challenge and encouragement. But Lord, I pray through it all that we would, that we would receive your word in, in a glad manner, Lord, grateful for how you speak into our lives. May your word bear fruit in our lives, we pray today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we've been talking, one of the characteristics of Jesus' last days was one of conflict. And not just a few arguments here and there. It's this increasing conflict that we're going to continue to be in as we get closer and closer to Jesus' crucifixion. It's, it's not exactly the most encouraging thing to think about spending the next few weeks of our times together, but, but it's certainly going to be Jesus' last days. They were one of conflict. Increasingly, Jesus' presence and teaching challenged the religious leaders of the day and, and revealed Jesus as one who spoke and, and, and taught with authority. And it was something unlike anything the people had ever experienced before. And so as the crowds and the people become more and more interested in who this Jesus is, the religious leaders become more and more frustrated by the shift of their influence from uh, their influence over the crowd to the crowd's interest in Jesus. And it creates this space of conflict. Just prior to our passage, Jesus was speaking with a, a scribe, one of the religious leaders, who, who tried to trip Jesus up by saying, Jesus, what, what would you say is the greatest commandment in the Bible? And you may remember, but Jesus says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. The, the funny thing or interesting thing about this little interaction is that both Jesus and the scribe are in agreement. They both agree. This, yeah, that is the greatest commandment. You're right. And, and, and so for, for uh, the scribe, he, he hears this. He goes, okay, yeah, you've, you've answered well, Jesus. And, and Jesus tells him, you're not far from the kingdom. Now, this sounds like Jesus is complimenting him. In, in some ways he is, but it also is like this backhanded compliment. To, to say to this man who was expected to be already in the kingdom of God because he's this religious ruler, this one with authority, to, to say you're not far from the kingdom kind of implies you're not yet there, right? But, but hey, you're, you're getting close. You're much, you're much further along than some of your, uh, your colleagues there in, in the Sanhedrin. And so for Jesus to say that he was close was, was something of still of a disturbing challenge that, that not only shut him up, but 
all of the religious leaders. At that point, they kind of step back from asking Jesus questions. And so Jesus goes from being on the defensive, where he's being kind of uh, examined and challenged, to now going on the offensive, as we start in our verse here in 35. In, In verse 35, Jesus asks a question. He says, how can the scribes say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? Now, his, his attention has shifted from this singular scribe who would ask him a question to now the crowd that's with him. How can the scribes say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? Now, it's essentially a rhetorical question. I don't think Jesus was expecting a response because most Israelites in those days knew the answer to this question, right? The Old, Old Testament expectation of the Messiah was that the Messiah would come from the line of David. He would be a, a son of David, And so it was common knowledge. There's a promise that God made to David through the prophet Samuel in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let me read it for us. God says through Samuel to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, from whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. Now, initially, it was believed that God was talking about Solomon, David's son, but As the kings of Israel and Judah, uh, as history unfolds and you see the kings of Israel and Judah kind of live out their existence, it it became clear that there was still one to come. Why? Because Solomon and the kings that followed all failed to be faithful to the Lord. See, the promise that God makes to David through through Samuel was the promise of a greater king who would be from David's lineage. And in this king, his kingdom would be established forever, unending. His reign as a king would be defined by righteousness and justice, peace and faithfulness. You see, in the first century when Jesus lived, the expectation of the Messiah was that he would come from the lineage of David. You could trace his family heritage back to David. Which is, you know, when we, when we celebrate Christmas and we uh, think of the, the city where Jesus is born in Bethlehem, it's called the city of David. A place where someone would come from David's line. That's why it's so significant. And the kingdom, uh, the, the king as uh, the first century uh, expectations were of the Messiah, is that this Messiah would, would recapture full control of the holy city. He would, he would recapture and rule the land he would, he would push out the, the oppressors and, and their, their enemies. But, but this here is where their expectation, what they thought of the Messiah, would reach its limits. Now, church, I, I just want you to consider something. I, I don't know what you envision, what you think of when you think of Jesus. But I want you to know that when the scribes and the religious leaders thought of the Messiah... Their expectation was not complete. In fact, it was very incomplete. 
because they had this expectation that he would be a king who would defeat their enemies, would reestablish Israel's rule and reign in Jerusalem and independence, and, and would rule with authority, with power. But that was it. See, their, their expectation was that the, the Messiah would execute God's salvation, but he himself would not be the basis or the content of that salvation. He would be somewhat like a messenger that God has sent, one to do a, a great work, similar probably in their minds and in line with what the judges did in the Old Testament. When Israel cried out for help, God would call upon a judge to come in and rescue his people to, to draw them back to Israel. But see, Jesus' question to the crowd helps us understand that there's something different about what Jesus is drawing our attention to. Because, yeah, of course Jesus could ask the question, isn't the Messiah supposed to be the son of David? And they would all say, yeah, that's, that's our expectation, that's what we thought. But I think Jesus installs just a subtle emphasis that should change how we hear it. Because basically Jesus says, how can the scribes be justified in calling the Messiah merely the son of David? In other words, how can the scribes be justified in referring to Jesus as merely a man, a human being, like the judges that came before him, right? You see... Israel expected a Messiah, but their expectation of the Messiah was, was incomplete. It'd be kind of like saying that we know Jesus as our friend and our refuge, but we don't know him as the Lamb of God, by whose sacrifices we're clothed in righteousness. Right? Or like saying that Jesus was a good teacher or prophet, but, but not the Son of God. See, I think, sadly, many people had an incomplete understanding of who Jesus was and is, but he's so much more than merely a human king. He's more than that, church. He, he, he's more than just someone who rescues us from, from our hard circumstances and, and, and comes in and out of our lives when we call upon him. He, he's Emmanuel, God with us. One who's promised to never leave us nor forsake us. He's so much more than a human king. Even after Jesus' crucifixion, even after his resurrection, we, we get a glimpse of the fact that even his own disciples didn't really understand who he was. They didn't quite get it. Right? You remember the story of the two disciples traveling back to Emmaus that, that first resurrection Sunday after uh, they kind of walked away from the city feeling downcast and, and disappointed because... Jesus was crucified. This is a story in Luke where, where the resurrected Jesus comes up alongside them as they're walking along the road. And he begins to kind of ask them what's going on here. And, and he notices that they're just overwhelmed with grief and, and, and sadness. And Jesus says, why, why are you sad? Why are you downcast? And, and there's a conversation that follows that I think is very interesting. Let me just read a couple verses for us in Luke 24. I'll, I'll pick up in verse 18. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to him, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. 
You see that even his disciples, those who presumably were there for, see, to see a lot of his teaching and miracles and, and the authority with which he not just taught, but the, the authority with which he cast out demons and forgave sins. The disciples who heard Jesus, presumably heard Jesus speak on the fact that it was necessary that the Son of Man must suffer and die and rise again. Even these disciples thought Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was a man, a prophet, mighty indeed. See, their, their view of Jesus was incomplete, church. And, and I don't know what's in your heart and mind right now. I can't read your thoughts or know the depth of your knowledge. But if I were a betting man, I would say that for many of us, we have an incomplete view of Jesus. In fact, I'm pretty sure my view of Jesus will be incomplete until I stand face to face with him and know him completely. And so, as much as I want to kind of give these disciples a hard time, and recognizing that they, they still thought Jesus was a man, a prophet who was mighty indeed, I can't fault them for having an incomplete view of Jesus. See, Jesus' response comes a little further down in the passage. I'm going to pick up in verse 25 for us. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. See, the complete picture of the Messiah isn't found in tradition or in man's understanding, but in the scriptures that God has spoken into existence. There is a Messiah, there is a Savior that God wants you to know. He has spoken into existence a, a revelation of himself. He has revealed himself to us in the scriptures through the record of the life of Jesus. The complete answer to who Jesus is was right in front of these disciples all along. So what was missing from their incomplete understanding of Jesus? Well, Jesus actually kind of gives us a hint to that by quoting a very important psalm, Psalm 110. It was a royal enthronement psalm, which meant that it was a psalm that was spoken at the, uh, when, when a new king was to come up and take his seat on the throne over the kingdom. Mark uh, 12, Jesus says this in verse 36 and 37. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, Jesus says. So how, how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. See, these words quoted from Psalm 110 were sung to welcome in this new king. And a king is what Israel has always wanted. God wanted to be their king. God wanted to rule over them, to, 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 to care for them, to provide for them, to, to make a place for them. But Israel, in their heart, as they saw the nations around them when they left Egypt and started to see the, the promised land, said, you know what, we, we think we want, we think we need a, a human king. 
And so God called upon his prophets to, to anoint Saul. Samuel anointed Saul as the first king of Israel. And if you remember Israel's history, you remember that God had the prophet Samuel anoint him, but that ended badly when, when Saul ultimately leads the people of God astray, leads them into disobedience in terms of where God had invited them to walk in, in obedience to him. Well, King David follows after Saul. And if you know David's story, you know that the scriptures talk about David being a man after God's own heart. But David was also one who commits murder and, and, and betrays the covenant of marriage. And, and really, ultimately, his story doesn't end well. He's not necessarily the, the, a picture of maturity and Christ-likeness and godliness that we would come to expect. And so, even after David... His son Solomon becomes king. And though much good comes from his reign, Solomon has many wives and does many things that, that contradict the will of God. And so his reign doesn't end well. King after king in Israel ends poorly until ultimately the, the monarchy in, in uh, Israel goes from being the one kingdom to a divided kingdom to no kingdom. I'm not going to take us to, to this chapter uh, or to this, this passage in Ezekiel 34 right now, but it's a great passage to look at if you want to understand what it looks like to trust in human authority and human leadership, to, to think that a human being is going to rescue and redeem and provide and care for us in the way that God wants to. In the first 10 verses of Ezekiel 34, God, God speaks against the shepherds of Israel and this is not just like prophetically saying, hey, you're going to do this one day. God looks at the shepherds of Israel, the kings of Israel, the leaders in Israel, and says, this is what you've done, not what you will one day do. He's observing, basically, what is the, the character of human leadership. He says, you're, you're shepherds who feed yourselves but neglect the sheep. You're, you're shepherds who don't strengthen the weak or seek the lost. You're leaders who allow the people to be scattered. But then when you do rule over them, you rule over them with a fierce force and harshness. See, Jesus' point here in Mark 12, in quoting from Psalm 110, is to say that we are hopeless unless the Messiah is more than merely a human king. Right, like if the Messiah was to be a new judge, a new kind of rescuer, but he was merely a human king, then we could expect all of the failures, or at least some of the failures, that are accounted in each of the other judges or kings of Israel throughout history. And so Jesus says, unless we believe that the Messiah is more than merely a human king, well, we're without hope. See, we need more than a human king because human kings and authorities and leaders have a, a, a broken record of, of leading the people of God astray. And so Jesus interprets David's words through the Psalm 110. He, I, he, he interprets them messianically. When, when he says, my Lord, when, when the Lord says to my Lord, He's ultimately saying when Yahweh, the God of Israel, 
says to the Messiah, the son of David, the, the, the coming king, when he says, the, Yahweh says to Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. He's essentially saying, Yahweh is saying, the God of Israel in, enthroning the Messiah as Israel's king, and, and then Israel's enemies become Yahweh's enemies. God is for us. He is with us. He is ruling over us through the Messiah, the Son of God and the Son of David. See, being seated at the right hand is an image of ruling as a king. I mean, I think we know that, right? But, but it's this image of ruling as a king. It refers to the power and glory given to him by God. And so it's from the seat that Jesus is said to, to intercede with the Father on our behalf, to, to speak with the Father on our behalf, to go before him, to, to not just kind of say, oh, that's just Dan being Dan. No, to, to ask the, God, the, the Father's forgiveness on my behalf, to, to, to provide righteousness to me on my behalf, to provide a way where there is no way. See, Jesus is, is the son of man spoken of in Daniel 7.14. The, the son of man to whom the ancient of days gives dominion to, right? Verse 14 in Daniel 7 says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. See, as the Messiah, the scribes are right to say that he would be a son of David and descend from David's family line. That's common knowledge. That, that's what every Israelite was taught to expect. But Jesus is more than that. He's not merely a man. He, he, he's the chosen son of man to whom God gives the throne of an everlasting kingdom to. See, church, what this means is that we don't have a king who sends a knight in shining armor to come and rescue us. The king doesn't send his best military leader to come and rescue his people. The king himself goes forth to rescue us and to redeem us. Church, I, I want us to know Jesus more. I, I want us to, to, to live in the confident faith that Jesus was more than merely a man. That, that his sacrifice on the cross was more than just a sacrifice, but won us something won us forgiveness and righteousness. That, that, that Jesus was more than, well, he was more than just a man. I, I want us to know Jesus more than our favorite football teams. I, I want us to know Jesus more than our favorite band or, or more than our favorite cars. Or I want us to know Jesus more than we know our own careers or vocations. Fourth century theologian Augustine is said to have written, Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. What is it you value in your life? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm asking, 
Because I want Christ to be that one that we value above all. Because when he is valued above all, then we are driven by a deep desire to know him more fully. To know what, what it means, what, why it's significant that he's with us in the valleys and in the green pastures, beside quiet waters, that, that, we, that, that we value knowing him because in each of those places, he is significant. It changes how we face every moment of our days. Jesus is, is, is more than just what he's done for us as our Savior. See, because he sits at the right hand of the Father, he offers to rule over us, to, to rule over our lives better than any human being could. As a pastor, I think sometimes, not some, I'm given responsibility to, to lead here at the church. But the reality is that I'm a human being. I will make mistakes, not intentionally or knowingly, but I will make mistakes. Well, maybe, maybe I will. Not, uh, this is maybe a, a uh, foreshadowing of a confession. I'm going to store it up for later on. The reality is I'm a human being. I don't want you to see me as being the one who rules over this church. I want us to understand we have one greater than merely a human being to rule over this church. Jesus Christ himself. God, God promises us what this will look like. If we were to flip back to Ezekiel 34, let me just read two verses, 23 and 24. God promises, I will set up over them, over his people, one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. He's talking about Jesus here. This is a prophecy of Jesus. Jesus will be the shepherd that the, 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 the ancient of days sets over his people. Right? A, a shepherd who will feed his sheep. See, Jesus wants to feed us with the spiritual food that nourishes our souls, gives our souls what they need, confidence, contentment, security, wisdom, direction, a, a, a purpose, and, and, and goal. Jesus wants to be a shepherd unlike any human authority in our lives. He, he wants to be our king who provides for us. He wants to protect us from our enemies. He, he wants to guard us. He wants to lead us to these green pastures where we can be nurtured on, on what is good and right for our souls and, and live in the security of being within the kingdom of God. See, Isaiah tells us that Jesus will judge the poor with righteousness and decide with equity for the meek. He'll destroy evil finally and completely. This is our shepherd. This is our king. This is why it matters that Jesus is not just merely a human being. See, the challenge that our, our passage offers us is, is to think more deeply about who Jesus is. He's not just someone we think of or, or turn to only when things are tough. He, he, he's not just a, a, a superhero or some rock star teacher. Jesus is not merely a man who, who lived in the first century Middle East and, and, and just kind of made his impact on history 2,000 years ago. Right now, he sits at the right hand of the Father and reigns from heaven. 
This is not some future promise. This is a present promise for us to take hold of that Jesus reigns over the kingdom of God and over our lives right now. But do you know him like that? Do you trust him as your king? Or is he merely someone who, because he died on the cross, gives you forgiveness? Does his rule and authority in your life have an impact on the relationships you keep and the people you spend time with and the ways you spend your days, the resources you invest in? So don't, don't make the same mistake that the scribes and religious leaders made and have a, a partial understanding of who Jesus was. Don't compartmentalize your life and say, Jesus is over here, and I've got a good relationship with Jesus, and I'm, I'm kind of, things are good here, so I'm just going to leave it there and, and go over here and live my life over here. Understand that Jesus wants to rule over your whole life and have a say in your life and an influence in your life. Don't make the same mistakes that the scribes and the religious leaders made. I want us to know Jesus fully. But here's the thing, I can't know him for you. No matter how much I want, to, I want us to know him fully, I can't know him for you. Each and every one of us has to seek him out for ourselves. Our passage in Mark 12 ends with these words. And the great throng heard him gladly. Not bitterly, not skeptically, not uh, out of obligation, but gladly. They heard his words sweetly, with great delight. The, the, the psalmist says God's word is like honey on my lips, sweet and delightful. And so would, would, you, would you take this challenge more seriously? To seek Jesus for yourself, to, to know him more fully, to, to kind of invite him to expand your understanding of, of who he is. Knowing him and hearing him has a great effect, church. It's like the, the voice in the head of a, of a runner that, that just keeps on running, right? It encourages them to finish the race, keep, keep going. No, no matter how much pain is in their legs or in their stomach, no matter how much their body is cramping up, it's that voice that says, keep going. The, the word of God, the revelation of Jesus, who he is, has a great effect in our lives, Earlier in our time this morning, I had us look briefly at the story of the resurrected Jesus coming alongside the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. What I didn't have us look at was the transformation that happened in these two disciples as a result of hearing Jesus and knowing him more fully as Jesus taught about himself in the prophets and the writings of Scripture. In Luke 24, Jesus sits down to share a meal with these two disciples and listen to what happens. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while, we, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. See, in one moment, these two disciples were walking downcast and defeated 
Because Jesus, the one they thought was merely a man who was a prophet mighty indeed, this man had died. But moments later, after Jesus reveals himself to them in the scriptures, they're transformed, they're inspired, they're encouraged with hearts burning within them, church. The, the sort of thing they did, leaving after supper, traveling another seven miles back to Jerusalem, back to the place where they feared for their lives, and so much so that the, the disciples locked themselves in a room. These two disciples had met Jesus in such a way that he'd inspired something within them to go back to the rest of the disciples and to let them know it's true, Simon has seen the risen Lord. So I think the difference in their posture was a deeper understanding of Jesus, was a deeper understanding of who the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God is. Church, I, I want us to know Jesus like this. I, I want us to, to, to understand Jesus more intimately, to have these burning heart moments ourselves that inspire us to respond to God's word, to respond to his, his son Jesus. I want us to have these moments, but I can't have them for you. So seek him for yourself. Church, may we notice our hearts burning within us as we seek our savior, Jesus Christ, the son of God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, uh, Lord, I am so thankful that you are a God who desires to be known, to reveal yourself to your people. Lord, this is certainly a world that needs to hear from you. And not just hear words about you, but to have a knowledge of you that, that inspires us from within, that challenges us that makes our hearts burn within us as we see the wisdom of your promises and your plan unfold before us. Lord, I, I pray that as, as we think about what you're doing here at Trinity, that we would be a people who submit to your authority, not to Dan's authority, but to your authority, Lord. May we have the wisdom to discern the difference between the pastor's wisdom and knowledge and authority and God's wisdom and knowledge and authority. And may we, may we cling to and desire more of your wisdom and your authority and your rule over our lives. I know that that's not a popular idea in this day and age, Lord, to, to be a people who are ruled over, but Father, we know that you are a good shepherd, that you are a shepherd who provides and protects and cares for his sheep. You are not a king who looks to build up a treasury of, uh, of treasures for yourself, but Lord, you have established this kingdom that your people might live in it under the reign of a good king who loves them dearly, desiring, desiring them to be children of God. So Lord, empower us, challenge us, encourage us, Give us the strength to persevere in seeking Jesus more each day and in seeking him, become more and more like him. God, you are for us. You are not against us. 
So Lord, may this desire, may, may we think of this desire and realize it's possible because you can make it possible. Thank you for loving us. May you make this true of us, that we would be a people who not just seek Jesus, but know Jesus more intimately and fully. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.